Welcome to the Giving Black Podcast, a podcast by Hassan Brown and Jamaji and Oyema Wanaji and Waram. Given that this is our very first episode, we wanted to take some time to highlight our podcast mission. When people first hear our podcast name, Giving Black, they may think of significant philanthropic gifts given to Black individuals or even Black communities. One such example is the Rosenwald Fund, which made fellowships available to African Americans between 1928 and 1948. Recipients of these fellowships were researchers, writers, artists, and other intellectuals. And among them were notable names like Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Maya Angelou. However, this is not the focus of our first episode. Rather, in this first episode, we explore Black leadership in predominantly white philanthropic institutions. The recognition that philanthropic organizations need diverse leadership is in part driven by the belief that diverse leadership best positions these organizations to make the most meaningful impact in equally diverse communities. As an increasing number of African Americans find themselves at the helm of leadership at premier philanthropic institutions like the Ford and the W.K. Kellogg Foundations, there is increasing optimism that this theory will bear important societal fruits sooner rather than later. Nevertheless, there is evidence that we should proceed with cautious optimism. Although Black leadership in philanthropic institutions is rising, the absolute levels of such leadership remain low. Moreover, those African Americans that do find themselves in positions of leadership still face a number of formidable obstacles as they tap into their diverse experiences and attempt to actualize their visions. Among those considerable hurdles are continued financial disparities, conflicts with their personal identities, and the pressures of living up to larger community expectations. Our guest on this very first episode helps us to really unpack some of these very important issues. We are joined by Dr. Irvin Scott. Irvin Scott joined the faculty of Harvard Graduate School of Education back in 2016. At Harvard, Scott's concentration is educational leadership, and he teaches the school leadership program and doctor of education leadership programs. Before coming to Harvard, Scott served for five years as a deputy director for K-12 education at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he led the investment of $300 million in initiatives focused on transforming how teachers are recruited, developed, and rewarded. This work was built on existing efforts that were occurring in the Gates Foundation's intensive partnership. At the foundation, Scott also led a team to initiate the elevating and celebrating effective teaching and teachers experience, which has become a teacher-driven movement and can be found in a majority of states across the country. Prior to his foundation work, Scott 
spent over 20 years working in the trenches as a teacher, a principal, assistant superintendent, and chief academic officer. Right before the, going to the foundation, Scott was the chief academic officer for Boston Public Schools, where he was responsible for the academic programming of the school systems, as well as overseeing all regional superintendents and schools in the district. Scott previously served as high school academic superintendent for the district and co-chaired Harvard University's Urban School Leaders Summer Institute. This man is a mentor, advisor, and a friend. Once again, Dr. Urban Leon Scott. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at the Gates Foundation and exactly what your goals were? Absolutely. So thank you, uh, all three of you, for having me today. Uh, I think this is a, an amazing idea to have this podcast. Let me just give you a shout out on that. Um, and uh, I'm super excited to be here. Um, so my time at the foundation, just to be clear, I was there, as Hassan said, for five years. So I started in 2011 and went uh, to 2016. Um, a couple of things are important. One is to understand the context at the time, particularly as it relates to K-12 education. And that sort of segues into the second thing, which is my goals, um, which was the strategy. Um, so the context, think of 2011 and what was going on during that time. Uh, First of all, the foundation was very much involved in sort of the national education strategy that existed at the time under the Obama administration. So President, President Obama was leading a major effort to transform um, K-12 education, public education in the country. Uh, the driver of this initiative for the administration, for the Obama administration, was Ernie Duncan, who was the former uh, uh, CEO or superintendent, I think they call him, in Chicago Public Schools. And the strategy in many ways was focused on two things. One was um, transforming uh, standards for all children, so uh, raising the academic standards that were expected for every child in the country. Um, just a real quick uh, uh, sort of more specific focus on why that was important. If you think about the K-12 education system in the U.S., um, it is very, very federalist focused, meaning the states have uh, the major um, responsibility for moving K-12 education forward. And that's great, but sometimes states have different expectations depending upon who the state is. And the Obama administration didn't think that was cool. They basically said we should expect all students to perform at high standards no, more, no matter where they are in the country. So uh, a major focus was uh, transforming standards. It's uh, oftentimes referred to as the Common Core State Standards, a very um, important, but in some ways contentious uh, policy initiative. So that was one strategy. The other strategy was just transforming teachers, uh, transforming teaching, uh, how we support teachers, how we 
uh, develop teachers, how we um, celebrate uh, teachers. Those two initiatives were really a major focus of the Obama administration. The Gates Foundation was very focused on that. So the second thing that I want to just say real quick was our goal with the Gates Foundation was basically to move those initiatives forward in a really sort of um, uh, connected way, I should say, a way that was connected to those specific communities. So not just focusing on a huge sort of national policy, but what does that national policy mean? What does it look like in Pittsburgh? What does it look like in Hillsborough County, Florida? What does it look like in Los Angeles, California? What does it look like in Denver, Colorado? You can make these huge policies at the federal and state level, but at some point in time, they have to actually get on the ground and connect with parents, teachers, students, administrators. And so the Gates Foundation strategy was actually uh, that I led was moving that work on the ground in those specific places. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm wondering if you could perhaps give our listeners a story that helps us to better understand maybe not only the challenges, but perhaps some of the successes, um, reasons why sort of you being in that position was uh, so unique and helpful in bringing that vision of achieving equity in the education space? Yeah, so I will start off by uh, giving a story, real true story around my ability to, or my, so my ability, it was my attempt to explain to people what I was doing at the Gates Foundation which people really struggled with because I had spent so much time, as I said, as Hassan um, articulated in the trenches of K-12 education. So I was a teacher for years and I love teaching. I'm still connected to my students even today, mostly through Facebook. Um, and so I did that for 15 years, loved it with a passion, high school English teacher, urban high school majority Latino population, but African-American and white were the other two prominent demographics. Um, I just loved that job. And then I ran a nonprofit for a couple of years uh, in Philadelphia, another urban community. Uh, then I came back and I was a principal for several years in the high school where I was a teacher. Um, so I, I just, uh, all told, it was about 15 years or so where I did the teacher principal nonprofit on the ground work. Um, and then, of course, I went to, the, to Boston Public Schools, again, on the ground, but more at a system level. And so when I took this hard pivot to the Gates Foundation, everybody, including my students who knew me, were like, what are you doing? And what is, what are you doing at the Gates Foundation? They, Everyone sort of assumed that my sort of penultimate job would be the superintendent of a school district. And I thought that would be the case also. But I took this hard pivot to the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation. And I, I, I did it basically because I thought it was a major opportunity. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity to be connected to the Obama administration's work to be connected to the Gates Foundation and to have this sort of on the ground view of what happens in schools and classrooms on a day to day basis, which is where I spent most of my time. And so people would ask, it'd be like, Irvin, what you, I heard you at the Gates Foundation, congratulations, but what do you do? What does the Gates Foundation do? And how does that actually impact the work that's happening on a day to day basis? 
And I would try my best to explain. I would really try to explain. Uh, and I would do all of the sort of theoretical uh, strat strategic focus conversations about our strategy. I would talk about our theory of action, whatnot. People weren't getting it. And then what I did was I, I, I started to use a visual. I took a bottle, uh, a, a bottle of water. I, I think I did this once when I was explaining this to somebody at a, at, at a place where I had a bottle of water and they still weren't getting. So I took a bottle of water and I said, I held it in my hand. I said, if this bottle of water represents the work of transforming individual students' lives on a day-to-day -day basis, when I was a teacher and I grabbed the bottle and I wrapped it in my hand, I squeezed it. I said, when I was a teacher, this is the way I, I was engaged in the work. I was all about, the, I had the work on a day-to-day -day basis in my hand. I, I, and I start, I would name names like Tommy and Raekwon and Felicia and Jose. These are all students I had a day-to-day -day experience with. And I did this for 11 years. Then I became a principal and I would do something like get multiple bottles of water and I would touch them all. I'd be touching them all and, all, and I'd say, when I became a principal, I was like this, I'm still touching them for a little less time and I'm touching them more through their teachers than I am directly with them when I, my hand was wrapped around the bottle. When I became an assistant superintendent or chief academic officer, now I got a whole lot of bottles, still touching them, touching them even less, touching them through their principals, who's touching them through their teachers, who's ultimately touching them. But at some point in time, I'm touching all of these bottles. When I went to the Gates Foundation, and I would take my hands off dramatically, because you know I'm dramatic. I said, when I went to the Gates Foundation, I touched no bottles. I gave money to people to touch the bottles, but I did nothing directly to impact them myself. So there was distance between the work. Now, some people, when they hear me describe that, particularly people in foundations, they're like, I don't know about that, but it's true. It's true. You're not there to do the work. You believe through your due diligence that you have identified the smartest people in the world to touch those bottles. And all you're gonna do is give them dollars and measure their impact over time. And so that was a major shift. And for a person like me who loves touching bottles, that was difficult. But I saw that I could touch millions of bottles through millions of dollars um, through foundation work. So that's a story to describe sort of how I would talk about the work going forward. Now, to your question regarding challenges, um, I think that I was thinking about that question and it occurred to me that I think there are challenges on the front end, particularly for people of color. I'm assuming you want me to think about it from the lens of people of color. So I think there are challenges before you even get into a foundation. And then I think there are a set of challenges that exist once you're in the foundation. Um, speaking personally, uh, I would say that the challenges prior are just the belief, both for you internally, as well as for the perceived public, including those who are in foundations, 
that you could do foundation work. There aren't many of us in that world. That's why I, I applaud um, your, your name, Giving Black. I, I assume it's a play on words in terms of giving back and giving black. Is that correct? If, yes, okay. So um, I think it's really, really um, a, an important I, set of ideas because number one, when you arrive, the question is, are you going to find ways to give back to those who you represent? And once you're there, you can't erase the fact that you are giving oftentimes in a position of authority, power, and influence that we're not often in as people of color. And so both of those um, ideas are really important. Um, and I just wanted to call that out related to your name. But I also wanted to call out the challenge is that we're so infrequently positioned in those places that we don't have the opportunity to give back. Um, and we don't have the opportunity to be people of color um, in these positions of power and influence. Um, so it's, it, it is difficult. There's a challenge just to get into the space. How do you get on the ramp? That is not a on ramp that we are typically, that we typically have access to. Um, so that's a challenge and I would call that a pre-challenge. Um, the, the, well, how did, how was that different for me? Um, well, how did I get on? In many ways, it was because of, yes, I think a lot of it had to do with a set of credentials that I brought as, a, as it relates to being a teacher, being a principal, being a system level leader. I'll be really honest, I think Harvard um, also creates a platform that people, uh, that I, I think just goes along with the milieu of your dis how people describe you. Um, and then, but the other thing, and I think this is so important for people of color, is networks and people that you know and people who know you. And I got into the foundation, my own ramp was really um, as a result of uh, a mentor, friend, colleague who was the director at the time and just reached out to me because she knew my work. She knew me as a teacher, she knew me as a principal, she knew me as a system level leader. Um, and um, she was a state secretary of education, a superintendent of schools. She, she's done a tremendous amount of work. Um, and she asked me to come on as deputy director. So this notion of knowing people, this notion of networks, this notion of people providing opportunities for you is a very real thing uh, for people of color. Um, and then there are challenges during in our research of African-American leaders in the funding space, one thing that we frequently found was that these leaders oftentimes felt as though they were alone. Uh, when they looked around, they didn't see many other leaders who looked like them. Could you offer some more insights on how leaders can oftentimes deal with this feeling of being alone? Yeah, um, so it's real. It is real. It is both literally real in the sense that the data will bear it out that there are very few. Um, I, let me be even more specific. Males of color in these roles, right? There are very few people of color. I think that number diminishes significantly 
when you say males of color. Um, and so I think that's borne out uh, through the data as it relates to philanthropic organizations in, 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 in the US. Um, and so you're literally alone and figuratively. Um, that, that, that idea of being alone um, also translates into seeing things differently, uh, having a different perception than others do, having a different lens through which you are looking at similar problems because for whatever reason, because of background, because of uh, experiences, because of culture, uh, because of racial um, uh, dynamics, you just think about things differently. And so when you speak up, you have to be prepared for not a lot of nods, head nodding right away, right? And so head nodding, someone should do a study on head nodding. Because when you're talking in a community of people, when you get nods, that is affirmation. It just sends a message to you. People are understanding you. Yep, keep talking. And when they smile, like y'all are doing right now, that's even more. But when you don't get that, you have to have courage to keep talking. And sometimes you don't get that, not because people don't agree with you, they just don't understand what you're saying. They don't know what you're saying. They have to, they are trying to get in their minds what you're actually talking about because they have not lived that experience. And so that sense of aloneness, which comes through those minor nuanced sort of elements of feedback, just is not easy. It's just not easy. So how do you address it? Um, I think about it specifically for the, the team that I was a part of. I was a deputy director, which means that's a senior level role at the Gates Foundation. Let me just do the hierarchy real quick at the Gates Foundation. You have Bill and Melinda, you have the CEO, you have presidents of programs, you have directors who report to the presidents, and you have deputy directors. Right, so I'm about four or five steps, and then you after that I should keep going. You have deputy directors, you have senior program officers, you have program officers, you have associate program officers, um, you have uh, assistants. Um, so I'm I'm sort of in the middle, right, and four or five steps away from Bill and Melinda, um, but. Um, and so of the deputy directors, I was the only one uh, male of color. I was the only African-American. And not only in K-12 education or US programs, I think there was a couple, maybe two other um, deputy directors in the US program, part of the Gates Foundation. Um, let me just, just go back to my point. There weren't very many. Um, and so one way to address this, I, these challenges of isolation of being alone, one is being grounded personally, being grounded internally. I think it's really hard to come into these roles 
not knowing who you are. And even knowing who you are, you can expect your, your ground to be shifting a little bit or to shake because I knew who I was. I mean, I felt pretty confident. I, I was felt blessed and honored to be there, but I had done stuff, right? I had led in Boston. I'd been assistant superintendent over all schools and been a principal and taught for years. And the strategy was about something that I felt very comfortable with. And that was how to push academic rigor, how to teach in powerful ways, how to create professional development that teachers grew from. That stuff, that's what I lived. I lived for, my, for 15, 20 years of my career. So when I went to the foundation and I saw that we were making investments around that stuff, I had confidence in that. The thing that I didn't have confidence in was overseeing $300 million across the country. That was new to me. I had never done that. And so, and you have to think that you're also with other people who have expertise in different ways. So that, that sense of personal grounding was really important. Um, not backing away from being stretched. This was a stretch for me, right? When, when this foundation job was offered to me, um, I, I specifically remember people saying, you should not take that job. And they gave many different reasons for me not taking one. It's the Gates Foundation, they're not loved. You're not gonna get any credit because you're not really touching the bottles to use that metaphor. Other people are touching the bottle, you're just giving them. There were so many different reasons. Um, foundation's only worried about measurement and you're more of a heart person. It's an intellectual place and you, you lead with the heart. There were many different reasons. But one of the reasons, one of the things that I've always aspired to or I have never run away from was being stretched. I like being stretched. I like doing things that I haven't done or I don't know a lot of people who have done, especially if I feel like I can have significant impact. So this, I'm still under the category of personal grounding. Right, so that personal grounding is important, especially when you go to places where you feel isolated. And I think this, or alone, I think this is important, not just in the foundation space, but there are many spaces where when we go there, we are not gonna find a lot of people. It's not gonna be a crowd of us. And this personal grounding, I think is really important. For me, personal grounding is also tantamount to being grounded spiritually. So whatever it is, that personal grounding is critical uh, when it comes to being in a space where you're alone. The second thing I think uh, is trying to find a community of people who, who can relate to your experience. Um, and I try to do this in many ways, but I will have to admit that I don't think I was great at this because I tend to be heads down around the work and less focused on, I need to find people who can commiserate with me. I don't think that's a great characteristic in the way that I lead, but I just call it out. I, I, if had I to do it over again, I probably would have spent more time connecting with organizations that are specifically focused on people of color leading in the philanthropic space. And those organizations exist. They do exist. And then the other thing I would say, and this sort of goes back to personal grounding. I think when people get to a place where they're by themselves, 
and they are reluctant to be themselves, that is torture. If you can't be yourself when you're by yourself, in terms of other people not being like you, I think that's a really difficult place to lead. But for me, when I'm by myself, I don't see a lot of people like me. That gives me more uh, fervor to lead the way that I feel I have to lead. This is who I am. I wanted to ask if there was one last nugget of advice that you could leave for emerging African-American leaders in the funding space. Uh, I would say get your work as close to the people who you're, who you're doing the work for. It is so easy to go to these places, these foundations, because let's just face it, they, they live and breathe money, right? That's why people, that's why they're foundations, they have money. And they tend to take care of their people, at least the Gates Foundation, amazing. They do an amazing job of taking care of their people, as they should. But what can happen in the midst of that is you forget who you are advocating for because you're being taken care of so well. You really have to fight against that. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott, for your time and your amazing insights. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. This is the Giving Black Podcast, signing off.